This morning we're in Psalm 19, and uh, I've got to be honest, even as I prayed the prayer of confession, like there is a, there's a truth to what I'm saying. Like I am warring this morning to believe, even as I'm sharing it with you, even as I'm preaching to you, even as I'm sitting under, like, like together we are sitting under the Word of God. No one is outside of that. And so this morning we recognize that. We recognize that all of us are wrestling to believe what is true. So this morning I would ask you, let's have Scripture speak to us this morning. Let's use some of those who, who have beheld this beauty and been changed and transformed by it to even hold it out again for us. And so uh, there's a couple longer quotes. If you have the app and you want to follow along, I'm going to try to read through them slow. I really worked on my introduction, and then I read um, C.S. Lewis's reflection on Psalm 19, and I was like, "Man, that's a really good introduction." So we're just gonna we're gonna use that as our introduction this morning to hold out what Psalm 19 looks like. And so follow follow along if you have it pulled up, or just listen carefully as I share what he says about Psalm 19. Or Psalm 19. I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Most readers will remember its structure. Six verses about nature, five about the law, and four of personal prayer. The actual words supply no logical connection between the first and the second movements. In this way, its technique resembles that of the most modern poetry. A modern poet would pass with similar abruptness from one theme to another and leave you to find out the connecting link for yourself. But then he would possibly be doing this quite deliberately. He might have, though he chose to conceal, a perfectly clear and conscious link in his own mind which he could express to you in logical prose if he wanted to. I doubt if the ancient poet was like that. I think he felt effortlessly and without reflecting on it, so close a connection, indeed, for his imagination, such an identity between his first theme and his second that he passed from one to the other without realizing that he had made any transition. First he thinks of the sky, how day after day the pageantry we see there shows us the splendor of its creator. Then he thinks of the sun, the bridal joyousness of its rising, the unimaginable speed of its daily voyage from east to west, finally of its heat. Not, of course, the mild heats of our climate, but the cloudless, blinding, tyrannous rays hammering the hills, searching every cranny. The key phrase on which the whole poem depends is there is nothing hidden from the heat thereof. It pierces everywhere with its strong, clean ardor, Then at once, in verse 7, he is talking of something else, which hardly seems to him something else because it is so like the all-piercing, all-detecting sunshine. The law is undefiled. The law gives light. It is clean and everlasting. It is sweet. No one can improve on this, and nothing can more fully admit us to the old Jewish feeling about the law. Luminous, severe, disinfectant, exultant. One hardly needs to add that this poet is wholly free from self-righteousness, and the last section is concerned with his secret faults. As he has felt the sun, perhaps in the desert, searching him out in every nook of shade where he attempted to hide from it, so he feels the law searching out 
all the hiding places of his soul. That's C.S. Lewis, and he holds out Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19 for us. He's, he's pretty good at, at writing. Turns out he knows a lot about literature, and so he has a, a great understanding of it, and also a great appreciation for it. And so he looks at Psalm 19, and he says, actually, that's the best poem that's ever been written, and it's the best lyrics. Now, I think that poetry is sort of a lost art, but then you look at modern music, and so much of modern music is actually poetry. I know, because I tried to write music, and I have no idea of melody or anything, so all of the things that I've written have turned into poems. They just become lyrics that never have music, and so they're poems. But when we read this, Psalm 19, it's this beautiful poem that was probably put to music. And so you, you read it, and you're like, man, there's beauty there. Some of us have a natural affinity for that sort of thing. We're going to see it, and we're going to say, man, yeah, I see where the connections are. Some of us really would rather just be doing math right now. And that's okay, too. And some of us just don't even want to think about any kind of schoolwork. That's fine. But today, what we need is the eyes of the Spirit so that we can see God's heart for us and the poet's right response to who God is. Like, how do we respond to this beauty? And so we need to ask Him to do that. So pray with me for a moment. Lord, we pray for something better than um, a scholar something better than a poet himself. We, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts today, that our eyes would be opened to the beauty, not of the poetry, but the beauty of the one that this is about. God, may we see you. May we see you as creator God. May we see you as holy lawgiver, commandment, covenant maker, And may we see you in the person of Jesus, the creator who became the created, the one who came to reconcile us to a holy God. Lord, I pray that throughout the world where your name is being lifted high, that your spirit would be working and your word would be effective. God, that you would be drawing men to yourself today. God, begin with us. Lord, do it in us today. May we find the rest that our soul longs for in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 19 begins with verse 1. And in this verse we have uh, just a microcosm of what the larger psalm is and what larger scripture is. Like there's this intricate beauty here. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So if you don't know anything um, about Jewish poetry, which like, how many of us really do, they like to use uh, chiasm, which is where you have the same thing repeated. And sometimes it's repeated uh, in the second portion in the opposite order. And sometimes it's just straight repeat. But the, the author is trying to give you truth. They're holding out what is true and they're repeating it for emphasis. 
And so the psalmist David in this psalm is doing that in verse 1. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So the heavens are part A. What, is, what do the heavens do? And so, I know some of us, man, we're like, I don't want grammar on Sunday mornings. I just don't want to do that. I don't want you to dissect sentence structure. But what I want us to see is, hey, there's no quiz after this, but there's beauty here. There's beauty that's been given to us by God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then he repeats it. So if you have the heavens in the first part, and then you have the sky in the second line. And so there's, there's a connection between the heavens and the sky. And then in the second part of both lines, it says declare, proclaims. Right? Both of those are synonymous. They're, he's repeating the same thing over with different imagery and different beauty. And then finally, the glory of God, His handiwork. So as you begin to look at, um, and, and again, I just want to offer to you, we have these uh, Psalm Scripture journals. If you're into this sort of thing, you get to underline, like there's some space for you to write some notes and to circle some things and highlight to grab one of those if, if this is something that you're interested in because, man, to be able to digest this beauty and to see, man, God, not only have you done good in creation, but you've even explained it in a way that is beautiful. You've used authors with different um, ideas and different understandings of, of language and how to communicate, and you've done that beautifully. Not only are the skies and the heavens just breathtaking to behold. How many of you have ever sat, and I know that some of you have, and looked up at the sky? Maybe it's in a hammock, right? But maybe it's just laying on the ground. Maybe it's just walking to the beach, and you look up, and you see the sky, and you see the clouds and the way that they move, right? Or, or maybe on an evening, you look up, and you see the night sky. And if you're really lucky, you see one of those shooting stars. And you're like, man, that's amazing. That's what the psalmist is holding out here. He's saying the skies that you have created, God, are so breathtaking and beautiful. How can they not point to who you are? How can they not declare your majesty and your beauty? And we see it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In that passage, the psalmist is saying, listen, the skies and the heavens are so beautiful and magnificent that they constantly are declaring the majesty of God. Now some scholars think that uh, it's saying that it's doing it without using words, and other scholars think that it's doing it by actually using language and, and pictures which are like words. But either way, what they're saying is that I don't need anything other than the, the beautiful creation of the skies and the stars and the clouds. All of them declare that there is a Creator. There's something, someone who put those into place. And He's perfect in his, the way that He orchestrates that. His design Think about it. We're on the globe, the earth, 
that's spinning at an incredible rate of speed, rotating around a sun, like, and all of that works in such a way that you and I are held gravitationally to this place. Like, if any of those things were out of whack, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. That's the design, that's the intricacy of what God has done as He created heavens and the earth. How can there not be a God, is what the psalmist is saying. How can you not see, how can you not hear what is being declared over and over every moment of every day? And then he uses this particular piece, the sun. And then he has set a tent for the sun, which comes like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Remember, this is being written a long time ago. I don't think that they had telescopes. I don't think that they had a as great an understanding of the universe as you and I have today. And yet, they probably had a better understanding of God than you and I do today. He's declaring that this the sun that kind of becomes the centerpiece for God's creation declares as it rises in its power and its majesty that there is a God. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. As we're looking at this, I want you to see three things. I want you to see this first section, verses 1 through 6 that we just read. I want you to see how God declares Himself. And then we're going to look at verses 7 through 9 and we're going to see... Not only has he declared himself in in a broad, general way, has he revealed himself generally, but then he's done it in a special way, in a specific way. He's given us the law. He's given us himself in his word. So you don't have to guess anymore about like, hey, this God that created the heavens and the earth, who is he? No, he's given us his law. He says, I am that I am. I've come to you in such a way. I created the, the universe. I created human beings. Right, The law is going to be those first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And this, this Torah is what David is, is expressing. He's saying, man, your law is so good. And so sometimes we just need to get clear here real fast. Sometimes we think law and we think Ten Commandments. That's true. The Ten Commandments are part of the law. And then sometimes we think law and we're like, okay, the Ten Commandments plus the other six or seven hundred that got added to it. And we're like, okay, that's, that's the law. All the do nots and the thou shalts. But it's more than that. that. That too is part of the law. But what David is saying, no, the law is the way that you have worked God. When Moses writes down this, this story of creation, right? When he writes down about Noah and he writes down about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all of those things are included in the, in the law, in the Torah. And so when David's hearing this, he's thinking, man, God, your story, your rules, your commandments, 
The way that you've called the people of God to yourself, it's beautiful. And so David is rejoicing in that. James Hamilton says it this way, If the glory of those who make things depends on the splendor of what they have made, how much glory is due to the creator of the world, the giver of life? Can we even begin the process of celebrating what the creator has achieved in a way that benefits what he has done? David sets himself that task in Psalm 19, in which his admiration of God as creator in verses 1 through 6 is informed and guided by God's word in verses 7 through 9, which woos him to all that is good, true, and beautiful, refines his character, and makes him pleasing to the Lord in verses 10 through 14. Follow along with the goodness and kindness of God in Psalm 19. He reminds them that that he has revealed himself to them in all of creation. That's what we see in these first six verses. Listen, Romans, Paul picks this up years later, hundreds of years later, and he reminds the church in Rome, listen, God has revealed himself. You can't deny it. Romans 1, 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. A, that's super kind of God. B, it's also pretty convicting and it leaves us in a place like where we don't have the option of denying God. It's been made plain to us. There is a God. There is one who has created and called all things into being. Done it in beautiful ways. Think about the most complex thing in creation that you can think of. I know a lot of people like to point uh, to look at the, the human body how intricately it's made. If you've been sick, you're probably thinking about that. Like, man, one little thing gets out of whack. I've got an earache this morning. And you get, like, the tiny little ear messes with your whole body. Throws your whole life out of whack. Like, that's the intricacy and complexity of God's creation and what he's done. And so we see that. And we're reminded of his beauty. We see it in the sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sun rises, moves through its rotations. The fact that we have seasons, like that's crazy. It's so amazing. And you and I live in Florida, and there are people in Alaska that really value the sun. Like they know there are days where that puppy doesn't come out. And they value it. And yet we just take it for granted, this beautiful thing that God's created. So we see God in creation. Hamilton continues, The creation has inspired awe and wonder in David. And he responds to God's glory in creation by shaping language that celebrates what God has accomplished in making the world. God's prowess inspires David's unmatched poetry. David has carefully arranged a string of words meant to sparkle with the glory of the God he attempts to extol. That is to say, as beautiful as this psalm is, the point is not the beauty of the psalm, but the wonder of the one it celebrates. Do we see that? 
Whenever we see something beautiful and valuable, does it automatically point us to Jesus? Do we we move from this good thing to the good gift giver, or do we just get distracted with the good thing? I know I do. I see my my beautiful kids, I see my beautiful wife, and I I begin to, to just think about them rather than it, actually thinking about them and then moving to, oh God, you're so kind. You've done this thing because really then I try to either please them or fix them if I just remain fixed on whatever that thing is rather than moving to the God who is in control, the God who creates, the God who is sovereign over all things. And so this morning I would pray that even as we read these first couple of verses and we're like, man, that's powerful. That's so good. That it would point not to the beauty of the heavens, not to the beauty of the earth, not to the beauty of the human body, whatever the example is that you have in your mind, but it would point to the good God who creates. So then, after verse 6, you have this transition. And like like C.S. Lewis said in, in the opening, he says there's a little bit of a disconnect. Like he moves from talking about the sun and how powerful it is and how the heat radiates to the law of God. Verses 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You know what? I'm going to back up. I'm just going to read 6 into 7, 8 and 9 so you can kind of feel that. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, talking about the sun, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Feels a little bit out of whack. He's talking about the sun, and then all of a sudden he starts just gushing about the law of God. Right? You're, you're reading that, and you're like, I don't know. Did somebody take two poems and just smash them together? But Lewis was talking about, no, like there's something about that heat, right, that penetrates throughout the whole earth, that nothing can hide from it. And then he moves into, that's the same way that the law of God, the the, the Word of God moves into our lives and it penetrates into the places where we try to hide, the places that we try to hold back from God. And yet he knows us and he sees. And his law is good. Like he's calling all of those things all of those places to come under His rule and reign. We talk a lot about the kingdom of God. and the kingdom of God, there's a king. Jesus sits on the throne. He rules. And if we enter into the kingdom of God, that means that He rules us. And there's nothing that we get to hold back that we get to say, that's mine, that's not yours. We say it every week in communion. My life is not my own. It's been bought with a price. I don't get to withhold anything. I get to give you everything. And so, the psalmist, David, does the same thing here. And this transition is, shouldn't catch us by surprise. When we were in Psalm 1 several weeks ago, kind of the, the foyer into all of the psalms, we saw that the psalmists are taking all of these things, everyday life, creation, beauty, And they're pointing to the ways of the Lord and what He has done. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And then in verse 2, he gets to the meat of it. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. When you hear the law of the Lord, does it stir something in you that you're like, man, that's good. I want to hear more of that. I mean, can we just be honest? Like, that's, that's tough to get to sometimes. We, we often think that the law of the Lord is going to tell me what I cannot do that I really want to do. And it's going to put some barriers and some restrictions on my joy. And yet, we see David here who is, who is saying, no, I've, I, David has access to absolutely anything he wants. He is the king. And you know what he wants? He wants God. He wants to know His commandments and His law so that He can know His Lord more fully. So that He can embrace Him. So that there can be a more full relationship. He he said in the other psalm that we looked at, one thing I ask, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord, right? That I would see His face. And so now He's saying, how have I seen the face of God? I've seen it through His law. What's really cool here is if you look in verse 1, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. God is El. It's in in the Hebrew language. It's a a more general understanding of God. But then in verse 7, he says the law of the Lord, which is the the word Yahweh. So you move from this more general God to a, a God who has revealed Himself explicitly. A God who has come to a a specific people and called them to be His into covenant relationship. Not just Creator and created, but a God who says, the promise is that I will be your God and you will be my people. So not only do we have a powerful, omnipotent Creator God who's beautiful, holy, other than us, but we have a God who has come and He has called us to Himself, particularly through His law. He's revealed Himself even more intimately. So when David sees the law, he's like, man, this God didn't just, didn't just reveal Himself, but He's come and He's told me exactly who He is. He's defined His character. He said He's holy He said he's just and that he's merciful and that he's good. And you know what? Good is not the way that I define good. Good is who he is. So I actually know what goodness is because I know who God is. This is David saying, man, God, I love your law. Look at the way that he says it. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. There's several times where he will take the law of the Lord and then he'll use a synonym and he'll describe... Like, what is the benefit? How is it good? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. He does this over and over. We already talked about like the beauty of, of Hebrew poetry, that he's trying to emphasize these things. He's using language in multiple imagery to convey this one truth. Like, do you know the law of God and is it the sweetest thing that you've ever tasted? 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We have been given God's law. We've been given His character. He's come and shown Himself to us. Listen, we talked community group this week about reading our Bibles, about like knowing who God is in His Word. And Randy and I were talking this week like, yeah, we, we're called to make disciples, to go and share the good news of who God is, but how will we know who He is if we haven't read His Word? If we're not going back to it consistently David knows the law of God because when he gathers in the temple, when he goes to synagogue, right? David lives in, the, in Jerusalem. So when he gathers at the temple, there is the word of God that's being read and spoken over the people of God. You and I take it for granted that at any moment, we can pull up God's word on our phone. That's what a gift. But I think sometimes it actually takes away because, listen, whenever David went and heard the law of God, he heard it with the people of God. He experienced it with all of the sacrifices that had to be made, the smells that would come with that, the the chorus of singing that came with it where they would sing the Word of God together. Like it was this whole experience of being and hearing and seeing God in the temple. And so when he's recalling the law of the Lord, he's remembering all of those things. The fullness of who God is. The fullness of how he has made us right with him. And he doesn't even, you know, he's got the, the glimpse of it in the sacrifices, but he doesn't have Jesus who came and was a sacrifice that you and I needed, the once and for all sacrifice that makes us right with God. He's hoping for that. He's longing for that. But you and I have that today. Do we go to God's Word with that kind of anticipation, with that kind of remembering, with that kind of joy? Well, we would say in verse 10 the same thing that David says. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now maybe you don't have a sweet tooth, And so this isn't hitting you the way that it hits me, but man, the sweetness of honey. The sweetness of of whatever is sweet to you. That's what David's saying. The sweetest thing you can imagine. The law of the Lord is better. Do we believe that? And if, if not, why not? But I think that there's so many distractions, so many things that we, we get wrapped up in. And there's, there's sin. There's real sin that, that causes us to experience this life and even God's Word in a broken way, in a not complete way. But one day we're going to experience it fully and completely. And even now we have the opportunity to come to God's Word and say, God, who are you? And in light of that, in light of who you are, both in your creative power and in your law, what is our response? Well, I have good news. We get to see what the, what the right response is 
as we read the rest of this psalm. Verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What is the right response to seeing God both generally in creation and specifically in his law? Right response looks like repentance. It looks like a, a, an asking God to search me and know me. As that sun would search out every crease and every crack with its heat, right? As it would warm all of creation, I pray that your law would search me. That it would expose my sin. Why? So that I can confess that sin. So that I can no longer chase after those things, but I can press into you and who you are. Some of these things that David prays right here are pretty tough. I don't want to pray them. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I like that part. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Wait a second. There's, there's like sins that I'm doing that I don't even know about. I, don't, I like to think of myself as a, as a good dude. right? An upstanding citizen. Good father. All of the things that I'm striving for, and yet God's Word says that there are presumptuous sins. There's things in me that I don't even know that I'm doing wrong. And I need those to be cleansed. I need those to be made right so that they don't have dominion over me, so that I can stand blameless and innocent of great transgression. How does that happen? If these sins are things that I don't even know about, how do I confess them? How am I made right before God? Like, I don't even know what sacrifices, as we look at the law, I don't even know what sacrifices. Am I supposed to bring the, the, the pigeon for that sin, or am I supposed to bring the... You know, what am I supposed to bring if I don't even know what the sin is? Well, there's good news for us today. How have we been made right with God? We know that all of those sacrifices actually pointed to one sacrifice. One who would come, who would live a perfect, blameless life. Who would actually fulfill all of the law. And I'm not just talking about the, the rights and wrongs of the law, the commandments, the, the thou shalt and thou shalt not. No, I'm talking about the one who has come and he is the end of the narrative too. Like the story of the God who purchased for himself a people. How did he do that? How does Israel get called out and then be made right, worthy of a God who would come and make him their people? He does it by his son. He sends his son to die on the cross for you and for me. Not because He deserved it. No, he, he was perfect. But there had to be one because Adam, the first human, in his sin, brought sin into the world. So we need a, a better Adam to come and to walk perfect righteousness, to obey the law of God, to fulfill the law of God. And Jesus comes and He does that for you and for me. He says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then we see him go to the cross. And at the cross, he pays for every sin. 
for those who are in Christ. Both the sins that you and I know about and the presumptuous sins, the broken nature, the things that I can't even see, Jesus has come and He has paid the price for that. And so we can pray the same prayer that David prays. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Change me. Forgive me. So that I can stand before you blameless. But we look at our lives and we see plenty of things worthy of blame, worthy of condemnation, worthy of punishment and wrath and judgment. And yet, on the person of Jesus, He took all of those things. He took the wrath of God. He took the judgment of God. He took the punishment of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so today, you and I can come and we can sing these songs with joy. We can read this poem and and feel uh, no disconnection. Like we, we can... Read one through six with the same type of excitement. God, you're so beautiful. Like you made the stars and the heavens, and it's so amazing. When I watch the clouds and, and I see like layers of clouds, and then we have the experience of watching rockets go through the clouds, like all kinds of stuff. But we're just like, God, you're amazing. And we see the sun and we're blown away by it. And then we see the law of the Lord, and we're like, man, that God. You're calling us to a... You, you're righteous. You're pure. You are life itself. But then we, can, we don't have to suddenly become somber, right? Or become broken or hurt as we read these verses, 11 through 14. No, we get to pray it with the same excitement. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Listen, Jesus has kept the law of the Lord perfectly. And if we're in Christ, then He is our reward. We get to know God. We get to experience Him. Which has always been the reward that God would offer to His people. To know Him and to love Him. Who can discern His errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. All of this is pointing to the beauty of who God is and what He's done. Listen, probably some of you have heard verse 14 before. Right? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The problem is that we think if I will just fix my words and I will fix my meditations, then God would be glorified and He'd be honored in my life. And so we make it a self-salvation project. Rather than recognizing that we can't do that, we have presumptuous sin, we have all of these hidden sins, and what we need is a Savior to cleanse us from all of these things. We need God Himself to make the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart acceptable in His sight. Your homework this week, because that's what we do. Go and read Psalm 119. I know. That's a long one. But man, you want to talk about someone who delights in the law of the Lord? The author of Psalm 119, the whole, the whole poem is this long, like epic poem dedicated to the beauty of God in His law. How perfect He is. How righteous He is. I just want to read an excerpt from it. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to Your Word. With my whole heart I seek You. Let me not wander from Your commandments. I've stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. Blessed are You, O Lord. Teach me Your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of Your mouth. 
In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all the riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. There's, there's words here that correlate really closely to this Psalm 19. It's statutes and rules and testimonies and precepts. All the things that we see as bad things, the, the psalmists are saying, man, those are good. They're good. Even when I can't fulfill them, they're good. But what I want to do is I want to fulfill them. I want to walk in them. I want to delight in them. And so this morning, the call is to repentance. We can do that because this personal God has come and personally paid our sin, paid the debt for our sin. We can respond and say, Lord, I'm not worthy of it, and yet you have called me worthy. You have given me value because you sent your Son. And so my salvation is at the cost of your Son. That's where I find my value. That's where I find my identity. One who is purchased. One who has been made right. God has shown His love for us and He's given us His creation and His law. We show our love for Him by engaging with God through His Word, through creation. The psalm is given to us to instruct us, to teach us how to worship. To teach us how to see who God is, both in His general revelation and to see Him in His specific revelation in Scripture. And then to to have our hearts shaped in worship. To know Him. And to pray to Him in a relational way. He ends with, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He's pointing back to the truth of the law. Right? The rock that is um, given to the people in the desert as their source of sustainment, sustaining source the Redeemer, the one who goes and rescues them out of Egypt, any time that the Israelites would remember their rescue, they would remember that they were held captive, and Moses had come and led, by, led the people to God out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. Like That's the Redeemer. They have an actual rescue that happened. Today, you and I have a hard time imagining that. We don't think we need rescue. And yet, when we realize how good God's law is, what He's calling us to, what the requirement is, we realize we need a rescue. We need someone to do that because we can't. This morning, there's some of us here that have never even acknowledged that. We've never said, man, God, I do need rescue. And so I'm praying that the Spirit would move on our hearts. That we would say, God, I, I can't there's, there's real sin. There's sin that's exposed that I can't fix. There's hidden sin. God, I need a Savior. And that we would cry out to God and He would reveal Himself to us and save us. Some of us have moved from that place where we should all be to a place where we think, well, now, I, now I'm pretty good. I've got, a, I've got a good handle on this. I was talking to Chris before. I said, I'm... Today I preach, you know, and I just realize, man, I, I'm not worthy to share this because I'm not believing in it and I'm not, I don't stand in it all the time. And so that's my confession, but really my confession should be every other week when I think that I, I do have something to stand on other than the gospel. I am figuring this out. No, God, have mercy. 
So maybe it's the first time that you've cried out for His mercy. Or maybe, like me and so many of us in here, we need to cry out again, God, I've stood on something other than Your grace and Your mercy. I've stood on something other than Christ. Will you, we have mercy on me. We forgive me. And then we get to run back to Christ. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. We get to say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen? Lord, we thank You for this morning. God, I thank You that we have windows where we get to look out and see the beauty of creation even as we talk about it. And then we have Your Word in front of us so we get to look down and see. God, You are so kind to us. Lord, but even in that, there's, a, there's a, a weight to it because that means that none of us can say, well, we didn't know. So Lord, I pray that, that You would change our hearts, that You would draw us to a place of repentance and desperation, that we would cry out to You. God, I can't fix myself. Will You heal? Will You save? May we not leave here thinking that we can do it ourselves. But may we leave here believing that You have done it for us in the person of Your Son. That You have atoned for our sin through Your own death. That You have given us life, this life that is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. This life that we have in Jesus through His resurrection. Lord, that we remember that our identity and our value is in You. God, You are the center of the story. Help us to believe that today, even as we wrestle with it. God, I pray that as we move into a time of communion, God, that we would remember that Your shed blood, that Your broken body was the price paid for our redemption. So that we too, like David, can cry out, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, the one who has rescued me. And we believe it today. Walk in it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.